Welcome to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. For this episode, Simon Austin went to St. George's Park to meet Dave Redding, head of team strategy and performance at the Football Association. Last month, Redding announced he would be stepping down from the role in December after almost six years at the FA. Simon asked him about his eventful and sometimes controversial reign. Thanks for joining us, Dave, for the Training Ground Guru podcast. Great to be here. So here we are on the balcony at St. George's Park. What's it going to be like to leave this place? Yeah, very. um, I think it will be emotional to leave because it's been a fantastic uh, six year period here. And um, although the the grounds haven't changed an awful lot over that period of time, what's what's happened in the building and uh, the way we work has changed, has changed radically. So um yeah it will be mixed emotions but there will be emotion no doubt because um it's always a privilege to work with your with your national team and your national association and um you know it's been a really unique opportunity but you know life moves on and i'm excited about the next opportunities as well fantastic and what, what was the thinking behind the decision to leave how did that pan out yeah i mean really um I guess uh, six years is a decent chunk of time where in, in any organization when you're trying to work through change. Um, when I sat down with Dan, when I first joined, Dan's horizons were very much five, six years. Um, and I thought, you know, similarly, that felt like a good chunk of time because I think over that period of time, you can really bring high levels of energy to a project. And um, I think for me, probably the, the thing I get most satisfaction from is uh, is the visioning and then the strategizing, the operationalization of change. So that the change process itself, and once things turn into more of an operational mode, I think it you know there are other people probably more capable than I of of doing that piece, and it feels like that's the point of the journey we've got to. So I think we've built some brilliant foundations. We've we've created. The platform, I think, for some great future success, um, and we've got some brilliant people here. So it, it just feels like the right time, I think, for the organisation, but also for me. And, and, and knowing yourself and knowing myself, I thrive on that real fast change process. And I think we're a little bit beyond that. And this next stage is more of an evolution than than a revolution. Okay. So was it a mutual decision or was it your decision? Yeah, mutual decision. Yeah, something I've been talking about. Um, um, you know, initiated by me, but Dan and I had spoken about things um, 12 months ago, really, in terms of what does the future look like. So something that I've been coming to for for a while. And, you know, I think also um, with, with Les coming in, I thought from the organization's point of view, that probably made sense too. So it, it all worked out well. Mm. And have you got any idea what you'll do next? I've got a number of ideas and not fixed on one yet, but... Um, I'm almost excited about not having that nailed down yet. Um, I think it's maybe a little bit different when you're earlier in your career and you're uh, maybe more nervous about things like that. If you've been through 20-odd years, you've probably had some ups and downs. You've left some jobs when you wanted to. You've probably stayed in others longer than you should have done. And and so I'm fairly at peace with myself um, that the opportunities will come up and I'm having some great conversations over the last six months or so that... Hopefully, we'll we'll end up with something exciting. Right. Fantastic. Will, will it be with another sporting body? Do you think? 
I don't, I don't know yet, Simon. So we'll, we'll wait and see. Watch this space, as they say. And just to rewind back to 2014, when you came in, how did the job come about in the first place? I'm trying to remember, was it advertised? Yes. Um, so I was, um, I guess, aware a little bit of some thoughts of change at the FA, probably back as far as... 2012 Olympics actually um, through some connection I had with David Sheepshank but with actually with Dr Ian Beasley who was part of the team I ran in London 2012 and um, but nothing happened for a while which was kind of the, 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 the state of things with the FA and then I just watched things closely and saw that then in 2013 Dan was appointed and it looked like things were starting to, to move then so yeah it was the, the normal process it was advertised um and um, it was definitely something that attracted me because I'd certainly, you know, football been my game. That's what I played. Um, and I'd worked in it as a consultant over the years. But I was probably also one of those people stood on the outside throwing rocks and saying, come on, when, when are you going to finally get your act together? So when the opportunity came and I was fortunate enough to get the role, but also convinced the FA was serious about change, then I was sold. Right. Can you remember your actual interview? I can, yes. Uh, there was there was a couple of rounds uh, in Dan's office, as it was, um, uh, upstairs with, with him and um, Danny Every. Was, that was the first round of interviews, and that was really got a bit of a grilling from both of them, really about uh, my experiences, but also the, the sort of vision of what I would try to bring to, to the FA. Um, and... Now, I guess what I tried to convey there was, uh, I think I said to Dan, if you want me to come in and just set up some support services, I'm probably not the right person for you because I like sticking my nose into places sometimes it doesn't belong, but my experience has been fairly broad. Um, and I, from the outside, saw the need for change. Having spoken to Dan, uh, I sense he did too. Um, but I was also really convinced that the organisation wanted to change, and that's that's the critical part of it. So yes, there was that, and then the second round was with with Trevor Brooking, and um, he he said to me, so, "So why do you want you know classic interview question? Why do you want the job?" <clears throat> and I said, um, "I think it was something along the lines of well, because you're at such a bad place at the moment. I think there's so much upside for for what could be could be done here." Um, which he laughed, and I took a deep in take a breath and I hope that was a good sign and, and mm. luckily I got offered the position yeah because I wrote down a quote actually from an interview you did with the boot room and you said at the time so much opportunity to improve so what were you looking at or thinking of in particular with that well um, I mean it sounds ridiculous to say but but almost everything um, so um, I think if I go back there the, the, the headline for me was um, we had a chairman in Greg Dyke who'd come out and set the goals of 2022 and 2023, which I thought was fantastic because, um, okay, you might say, well, he did that unilaterally. What was the evidence behind it? But actually, to me, it didn't matter. It was eight years away. And in eight years, genuinely, with the right people, the right plan, you can change the world. And I've seen that in other sports that I've worked in. So that that really excited me. But then coming in, um, I guess it was an organisation almost like many big governing bodies that had kind of lost its way a little bit uh, in terms of its role in elite performance, maybe stuck a little bit in a mindset that, well, 
we don't see the players very much so there's very little we can do um and when i came in um I suppose I was fortunate that throughout my career, I've, I've had lots of different experiences in different sports, as opposed to just working in one. Um, and that gave me lots of ammunition, lots of things to look at from different perspectives. And 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 so almost everywhere. So if we take support services just, to, just first, um, if I go all the way back there, I think we had, I'm going to say, 13, 14 full-time employees. That was it across every single support discipline. And actually right. 10 of those were analysts um, who'd moved over from Loughborough University. Oh, okay. And then we had Ian Beasley heading up medicine, Gary Lewin, uh, physio, uh, Tracy Lewis, um, uh, women's physio, John Iger, uh, doing some stuff around sports science, Naomi Dax. So maybe it's a couple more than, than 13, 14, but that was it. We had no, uh, no, no psychology support to teams, um, no nutrition, um, most of the other services were provided by consultants who would just pitch up for a camp and dis disappear again. We had no connection to them. Um, with our coaching uh, set up, um, many of the, the full-time national coaches wore two hats. They were someone like John Peacock, who was very successful, was running the pro license and the under-17s. So mm. um, when you take a step back and you say, okay, the the goal, the long-term vision is to try and uh, be the best in the world, but to, to, to win World Cups in 22-23. This is, we look at where we are now, and, and senior team is where you judge your, your success. Well, we haven't been really that close to that, if we're honest, for 50 odd years. Um, then you start to say, well, so what's the gap? And, and one of my headlines would have been, we just, we weren't structurally set up for success. So we're talking about it, and there's a vision out there, but it's not matched by the reality of the investment, the structure, the people that would enable you to deliver that. And probably further analysis, which resulted in um, Dan and I presenting to the FA board in September 2014, was that really when you drill down to, into it, English football is quite unique, a unique set of circumstances because um, we have the power of the Premier League, the best league in the world, the most financially successful league in the world. World, And as we know, every year, year on year, there are fewer English qualified players making starts in the Premier League. So in one sense, we could sit there and blow our cheeks out and complain about that. Or, or we can just con confront that that's the reality. And it's probably not going to get better. It may even get worse. And then we can look at things from a different perspective and say, OK, outside of that, what's in our control? What are the things that we own, we can influence? that can make a transformational difference to performance and that's the that's the focus we put on it um, and doing that through the lens of uh, another sort of headline which which is international is different so um, probably more so than many sports uh, club football is very influential just generally speaking um, and I knew from my time in rugby union and Olympic sports that the international context is always different and it is different in football in the sense that you're together 24 7 but only for short periods of time not like a club um you're away for tournaments that might be six seven eight weeks away at a time and of course you you don't have the ability to connect with players every day and influence their development so it is different in that sense and and so with the vision with the the, the challenges running these qualified players and that difference of international I think that gave us a license to say so we need to be different in order to close this gap and mm. there's no point in us looking at Germany and Spain and saying 
look how fortunate they are, look at their structures, look at their connections between their best teams and their national teams, because we don't have that. And actually, it's not really in our gift to change that very much in the next four or five years at least. So our focus was very much on us. What can we do? How are we going to change? And we built we built the system. You know, I try to build the process and the people and the structure based on that, right. that background. Yeah. I always remember, actually, uh, Clive was saying, Sir Clive Woodward, who you work with for uh, England Rugby, he said he wanted everything to be the best with England. So when the players came from their clubs, it was a privilege, something they looked forward to. Um, is that something you've had in mind with the, with the England national teams in football? Um, only to an extent, um, because I think that, in my experience, if you just put the best in every area there's a danger that you just end up with this completely unmanageable mass of interventions and, and, and also a bit of an arms race with, with clubs. And frankly, um, we can't get into an arms race with the likes of Manchester City or Manchester United because they've got more money than us and they've got more, more, more opportunity to do that. And, and so, but we definitely wanted to upgrade the England experience significantly, but, I think probably less so in terms of the tangible bits because like you're sitting here in a fantastic facility which had been built already. So it wasn't about, um, it wasn't really about the, the physical things, although we've certainly upgraded those over the years, there's no doubt about that. But it was more about, um, I mean, the first thing for me, and again, experience from previously, was the emotional connection between players and staff and England. And that's a game change. That's a pivotal thing for me because that, if you focus on that, you, you know, and you embed there, you engage them deeply in the mission and the vision and, and you find out how it connects to who they are as an individual and what they're trying to achieve, then, then the, the what you're asking them to do becomes a bit irrelevant. They'll do it anyway because they're so connected to the why. And, and so that's a huge thing. So... The, the work that we've done over the last um, four or five years on our identity and our culture is really the evidence of that. So it, it should feel different. And I think it does feel very different from talking to talking to former players or the research we've done when we did talk to former players was that historically they didn't really feel that. There was no, there was no, um, it was assumed that players would connect themselves to an England identity, but actually because it wasn't spoken, it wasn't constructed, it was whatever they'd made it and, and it was very different. So we wanted to really purposely focus on that. And this, of course, links back to the DNA that yeah, Dan started. Yeah. That's where the who mm. we are piece is, which is... Which people were very cynical about to start with, weren't they, I remember? Yeah, and, and look, I, I think probably um, we're all a bit cynical, aren't we? And and perhaps the, the mistake, if there was one there, was to publicize that early um, when at that stage it was really just a framework there wasn't it was you know five hexagons representing the five areas of focus but if you if you looked inside of them we could describe the headline but we there wasn't much detail behind it so um, I hope over the over the, the last few years we've we've mitigated some of the skepticism by showing there's some substance behind it and that doesn't mean it's finished by any means but um, there's a lot of work being done so examples like that would be that's how we've upgraded it but then we've also tried to do it around our practices in different areas so if we take physical performance physical performance and influencing physical capability international level 
when you've only got the players for 50 days is on the face of it very difficult. And maybe even some would argue we shouldn't have been going anywhere near that. But you have to take a step back and say, well, what is this model that we need to build in order to achieve success? You know, what are the constituents of that? And if one of those is physical performance, you can't stand back and do nothing. And when I arrived, um, we had no philosophy of physical development. We had no standpoint of, of what we were about. And so then um, really the only tactic that was working was, and, and I use working as an, an I put it in inverted commas, um, was really players would come in and we would just do whatever they had been doing. And look, that, that's certainly a strategy, but it's a it's a passive strategy. You're, you're essentially saying we've got what we're given and we can't do anything with it. And in my view, in my experience in rugby as one example, if physical development and physical capability is an important part of your overall performance model, you, you can't just stand back. You've got to be more than passive. So the work we've done there has been to... A, get, great, get some great people in the building. You know, someone like Bryce Kavanagh brings huge expertise, knowledge, experience, and some great people skills too. So to define, so what, what's our approach? What are the demands of the game at international level? And how does our philosophy of working uh, take those demands and translate them into the context that we work in for a philosophy? Now, that might mean we'll, we'll sit down with a club and they might disagree with our philosophy, um, but I'm really comfortable with that, you know, because it isn't, you know, the, the context is there's going to be some conflict at times because our, especially at senior team level, our, our objectives are not mutually aligned all of the time. You have to accept that. Um, but if we've got players who dream of winning World Cups with England and dream of being successful, we need to be in the position with their clubs of giving them some choices. And, and they, as a mature play, have to learn to operate between those two, maybe at times slightly competing demands. But you know, in my view, we couldn't be just the, the passive party in there because I think, again, you just you're ceding control of an area that you you may not ever control, but you can certainly influence. And so, you know, there would be a couple of examples of how we've tried to go about changing. Right. Okay. So to take the World Cup last summer, were the players actually going up a level? in terms of fitness, do you think, for that tournament? So preparation, I mean, physical preparation for the World Cup is always compromising that last period because it's the busiest time of the club season and the best players are likely to be playing for clubs who are in the, in the latter stages of those competitions. So Champions League guys got a couple of weeks. But over the course of the preceding 12 months, um, Bryce and the team had done a lot of work on physical profiling, which was then about helping players understand the areas um, over which they had some control and through some um, small doses of work over a more prolonged period of time, they could boost their capability. So, you know, were they in better shape for the World Cup than they had been 12 months previously? Yes, they, yes, they were. Were they at the level that we think is where we probably need to be to win a World Cup? No, I don't think so. Um, I think there's still more work there to do. Right. Well, what type of work? What, what are you thinking of in particular? Then? Well, I mean, specifically, it, it, look, it's different for every player because the approach we take from a physical profiling point of view is to try and, again, against the model of the international demands, um, what does each individual player need to do to improve on their strengths and, and what are the key areas that might be holding them back? So it, 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 it differs. I think probably rather than saying you know, it's jump squats or it's X or Y, the, the, the overall philosophy is what is it for the individual 
and what is the what is the work that they can do more chronically lower doses over a chronic period that just helps to build that capability over a prolonged period of time um and because i guess i i still think within football there is still bandwidth to improve physically and, and i think it's been interesting looking at the work of people like pochettino and klopp where you know they've come in and fairly radically changed physical training approaches at the clubs they've been part of and i, I really admire the work they've done because they've been prepared to take the hit you know i'm very much very much aligned to tony strudwick in his view here in that um i think that the previous generations of sports scientists have created a real problem for our athletes in over measuring and, and creating over cautious coaches you know going back 15 20 years coaches were doing all of it and uh, you know the, the, Maybe some of that work was a bit uneducated, but look, so, so so was some of my work as a physical performance coach when I was working in rugby. You knew what you knew and you did the best possible, but hard work never killed anybody. And I, I do think there's a we're in a bit of a phase where um, we've we've intimidated some coaches away from doing too much, and this whole concept of load is has just got a life of its own. And and the problem with that is. The danger is you get a generation of players with really limited bandwidth of physical capability. So anything that's slightly out of the ordinary, they can't cope with. They get sore, you know, they may get injured. And that's not really healthy for anybody. Um, so boosting physical capability is really important. And again, going back to what I know Tony's talked about very strongly, we should be looking to change that capability, not just keep it within a, a narrow set of, uh, of bandwidth. So... I do think there's much more to do and I'm really full of admiration for those coaches who've been prepared to tolerate a few injured players in in pursuit of that goal because I do think sometimes that's what it takes. You have to be prepared to take the hit and say, look, the whole group are only going to benefit if we can fundamentally change. Along that journey, we're going to lose a few, sometimes for a week or two, sometimes for a bit longer, but in, in pursuit of the greater good, you've got to do that. Yeah, that, that made me think of Johnny Wilkinson, actually, when you were talking there because I think he said the mind can hold you back a lot and the body is capable 100%. of pushing a lot harder than you think. De definitely. And I think that it's a really interesting generational challenge because we are in the era of measurement and feedback. And so in Johnny's era, um, we didn't even have heart rate monitors, um, let alone GPS or anything else when, when I was working with him. And so there was a lot on feel, you know, you put a bit on how you constructed sessions, of course, but you know, we, we work blooming hard. And uh, without, you know, I'm 50 now, so I'm in danger of sounding like this old wizened coach and like any generation, the young ones go, bloody old school, here we go. But I suppose the thing I'd, I'd like people to consider is whether the measurement actually helps the overall objective. You know, if you're, if you're having to tolerate scenarios where, look, deep in a season, you're going to be tired. And there'll be moments where you're just not quite at the level you would love to be. You're never fresh, but yet you're still going to play the biggest games. Is it? always helpful for them to be a display to, for there to be a display or a dial that says yeah do you know what you are running less than you were or you are tired you know psychologically that affects you whereas if you take the limits off i think it's amazing to see what people can achieve when you don't tell them what the limits mm. are because we human beings we tend to we, we tend to fall to the mean or to the to the to the ceiling that people give us and um I think that's been true throughout my career. You know, one of the statistics we used to measure in, in rugby was um, sort of work rate or meters per minute covered or in events per minute. And, 
you know, almost every season that changed. It was, well, I don't think it's ever going to get above 100 metres a minute. And then suddenly next season or the two seasons, like someone's doing 120. People surprise you all the time. And I think human beings continue to surprise us. So I, I do think there's a big opportunity to continue to take the lid off. And that doesn't mean crazy stuff where people are breaking every five minutes, but it's a bit of a vicious cycle, I think. If, if we don't push, we're in a vicious cycle, which is, if you don't push, you can never push because you never create the resilience or the physical capability to give athletes the bandwidth to do that. So I think it's a big watch out. You know, how do we use measurement intelligently? Because, you know, the danger is we get players sometimes and sometimes with clubs who, who are complaining about the fact that we've run 20, 20 metres more high intensity distance than they should have done in a week. Uh, I think that's just getting ridiculous. Right. Okay. Interesting. Have you managed to navigate that with the clubs? Is that are you in a good place now with communication and relationships? Yeah, look, we we are. I think fundamentally different from where to, to where we were before. Um, and I would I would hope that there is a general respect for what we're doing, if not always entirely an agreement with what we're doing. But I'm comfortable with that. I think it um, it's not quite as um, it's not quite as the analogy I would use with it, but forgive me, but if you can imagine a divorced couple fighting over the children and what the children are going to do on the weekend when they don't have them. Um, and, and that could describe the relationship at times, you know, at its worst and at its best. So at its best, the divorced couple mutually agree what's good and they respect each other enough to trust that the, the, the children's best interests are at heart. At worst, you get a situation where mum might be saying, I don't want them to go rock climbing next weekend with you. And dad says, look, I'm really sorry. I hear you, but it's my weekend. They're going bloody rock climbing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, you know, sometimes rock climbing is the right thing to do. Um, I'm sure dad doesn't want them to fall off and hurt themselves. Um, and of course we don't. Um, but I, I suppose you have to be comfortable at times. You, you're not going to agree because I, th I think we, we have to be comfortable with the fact that um, you know, maybe more so at development team age groups, there's maybe more of a, a mutual objective. We're trying to promote the opportunities for developing players and academy managers want to see their players playing in senior England teams and then for getting senior, uh, senior team opportunities. It, it's less linear, I think, with, with senior team managers where winning is everything. And I would imagine with a lot of a lot of club managers, they'd probably rather there wasn't an international program. I probably wouldn't either if I was in that position because it interferes with their job of winning. And look, I understand that, and um, I guess respect is what we're looking for, both both sides, not not necessarily agreement. Yeah, yeah. But one thing that a few practitioners have said to me actually is there's not a lot of crossover. They don't think between the England staffs and the club staffs. And some people complain about that. They say a lot of them have come from Olympic sports or EIS. Or is that a fair comment? Do you think? Do you mean crossover in terms of interaction, or well, do you mean crossover and in terms also of... club staff getting jobs oh, in I the see. England setups? Yeah, I see. Um, I, well, it's interesting. We, I think that's a, I think that's more perception than reality. It will be slightly different in different disciplines. Um, if we take analysis, pretty much almost all of them have, have come from club backgrounds. We've got a decent sprinkling in certainly our consultant staff across physical performance medicine, who've, who've definitely come from club backgrounds. Um, someone like Matt Konopinski from as a physio, Steve Kemp as a physio, you know, core core background. So I think we've got a good mix. I I would be very uncomfortable if it was 100% one or the other. 
Um, and and look, I didn't I didn't start the process of recruiting with a with a mindset to say there had to be one or the other. We just looked for the best possible people, and and probably one of the things I was looking most for in recruitment was was people who had the ability to think outside of the parameters of the game. And I do think at times um, the culture in football is what I would describe as heavy. You know, it's a big game, lots of opinions. Every every sport has them. There's just more of them in football. And so, and, and maybe more of a culture because it's been professional for so long of a way of doing things. And so given back to the context of international football, if you're not capable of thinking outside of that culture and those parameters, I'm not sure you could help us win because, you know, our mindset is we need to take all of those parameters away, start again and think about how we would design this from scratch. So those people from football who can meet those, that, that mindset, we, we want them because you're always better having someone with the same level of expertise and football experience than someone without it. But I also think um, the diversity, the diversity of experience that we've got, brings some really interesting perspectives and new ideas to uh, to what we're trying to do, and that really excites me. You know, it's um, you know it's where people like Kate Baker in in Player Insights bring some real value because it's a very different perspective, and it might not be the way everybody does it in football at, at the moment but I think there'll be a huge amount to take from that going forwards yeah and that, that does bring me on to the player insights has that been the biggest change you've instigated do you think um no, no um frankly um because I think probably bigger than that would be uh the the people and team development function that, that I put in place sort of a year after starting which is more about cultural change and and um creating the capability in our people and our leaders to, to drive a high-performance culture. So that was a big thing because actually what people th- said they wanted at the beginning was we need sports psychology. And I just didn't think sports psychology was going to help us a great deal in the environment we worked in, given how little time we're together. So that was a big change. Um, I think there have been big changes across all of the disciplines, really. Um, I think the player insights one is is more recent. So, um, and, and look, it's it's part of evolution. If we look at where we were in 2013 before I joined, there was no talent ID department. There was there were no uh, there were no scouts. There was nothing in place whatsoever. The FA didn't have it. Um, so Mike Rigg set that up to begin with, and Richard Allen took it over and evolved it into a you know, a fairly comprehensive scouting system. And they were scouting at all levels, men's and women's? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, And so, uh, you know, I guess what's interesting is that the perception out there is we've ditched all that. We're not doing that anymore. Uh, It's all about data. It's all about statistics. And sort of nothing could be further from the truth, really. You know, I guess the, the evolution there has been we needed to go beyond just scouting players. And, and it was a department that wasn't really pushing as far on as some of the others were. And that, that wasn't just my judgment. Um, that came from a number of sources and senior people within the organization. And we felt there was a need for a much deeper and more comprehensive insight on our players. And an insight that was not just opinion. Um, it was you know, certainly coach-led 
um, evidence-based, um, data-informed. That doesn't mean all about data, and it doesn't mean data's just numbers, but player-centred. So, <clears throat> so scouting is still a really, really important part of what we do. It's it's imperative. We're just trying to improve that and make it more um, valid and reliable. Um, get more from it. Uh, data is not just things like Opta statistics or the, the coding that we do on players. Data also includes the expert opinion of coaches and, and scouts who watch players, but also the opinions, observations and information that everyone from a, within a multidisciplinary team will contribute to that, all brought together in a holistic sense that allows us to truly understand the profile of a player, but also create deep insight about the trends and the journeys of England players to this point. So we understand better how players have got here, what the context of the game is at this point, um, what we think some of the trends might be going forwards. We know, for example, that eligibility is a, a big changing landscape within the game. 88% um, of our development age group players are eligible to play for another country. Um, and that picture has changed vastly over 15 years. So capitalizing on some of those sorts of things. Um, so really that was, it, it was, you know, I, I suppose a change in, it was a fairly big change, a more recent change, but, um, you know, arguably maybe not as big as some of the changes elsewhere. Right, okay, because it's obviously had a lot of publicity, hasn't it? And I'm thinking about the Telegraph story last week, you know, written some quotes down about um, someone in tears, suffering, stress-related illness, um, being forced out they said um what, what's your perspective on it and how how would you respond to that and that report yeah, look i think ch change is uncomfortable there's, there's no doubt about it um and and change when it affects people's lives is, is the hardest bit about uh organizational change um i've been through it myself uh when i was at the rfu i got made redundant I didn't want to go. Um, I don't think there was anything anybody at the time could have said to me that would have changed my perception that it was the wrong decision and they got it all wrong and it was nothing to do with me. Um, but a good few years later, I know I was wrong. Um, and actually, I think they did the best they could. And, and I suppose if I take that forward, um, in making changes, I've always tried to do that the best in the best way I, I, I could. Um, you know, look, of, of course, I don't want to respond directly to individuals, um, especially anonymous individuals in the in the press. Um, but as an organisation, I think we demonstrate extraordinary levels of care for for that process, better than anywhere else I've ever worked um, to try and look after people on that. But you know, I'm afraid um, change is hard, and not everyone will agree with it. Um, uh, but but change or driving change is an important part of the role that we have here. And so the responsibility I have is to consult widely and try and make the best decisions I possibly can. And in doing so, try and convey that information as sensitively as I can. I'm sure like everybody, uh, you know, on reflection, at times you like to do things better, but I think we've done an awful lot of things right. Um, so... There are, of course, a lot of other people who've left the organisation who uh, go on to continue to stay in touch, say very positive things about ourselves and the organisation. Um, 
and you never hear about them. So, you know, I I, I accept the the fact that the the sport that we're in uh, attracts a lot of publicity, and therefore, you know, as an organisation and as an individual, there'll be times where you're gonna you're gonna have to take that sort of um, anonymous feedback or, or or commentary on it. But I my conscience is clear in terms of the way that we've done things. Of course, where there are individuals who who've have gone through personal hardship as a result of the changes, you know, I'm 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 sorry for that. I'm clearly sympathetic to that, but I, I wouldn't change the decisions that we've made. Right. And did you handle it as well as you could have? Do you think looking back? Yeah, I genuinely think we did. Genu- you know, this is this the process. Um, I genuinely think we did. It was you know the the big change process really happened back in uh, 2015. Um, and there, there were, there were, you know, both a lot of people internally who reapplied for their jobs, many of whom got different jobs. There were a few people who left the organisation. It was a big change program, and inevitably caused a lot of ripples internally. But I think we handled that brilliantly. And then subsequently, in an organisation this size, there are always going to be situations where people leave the business. And I genuinely do think um, we've got a brilliant support network here at St George's Park and at Wembley the HR system is superb and as I said I think the way it's done is better than anywhere else I've ever worked so um, that's my perspective uh, undoubtedly others who you know who've left may have a different one but I'm I can speak with a clear conscience on mm. that yeah because I think the FA just came out with a line at the time saying you dad had to have training to improve management style after that what was that something that happened then? No, well, I think the two things got linked. Uh, so to, to correct it a little bit. So um, every year we run a, um, a comprehensive personal development review process. Um, so we set objectives and then as part of setting objectives, um, it's, you know, we talk about the how as well as the what we're going to do. And as part of that, we run a comprehensive 360 degree feedback process. So um, there wasn't a, you know, at times in everyone's journey, you get some really, really good feedback and you get some feedback that helps you improve. So um, there wasn't this big management training program that happened. There was some, some feedback that has been attributed to this particular situation, which was not about it, which was about me getting better. And I hope I continue to get the feedback and I hope I always get better. I hope I always work in an organisation that runs that process because it's incredibly valuable. Mm. And looking ahead, how do you see the uh, state of play at the moment? Because obviously, great success at age group level, not so much in the last year. Um, Where do you think we are across the age groups and the senior team as well? Yeah, you know, I think in terms of trajectory, um, I think we're we're right where we need to be. Um, So, you know, we are... I guess four or five years into an eight, nine year journey. Um, and we've done a lot of heavy lifting to this point. We've made a lot of structural change. We, we've got a much truer sense of who we are and what we're trying to be. Um, I think probably if we look at 2017, because that's become the benchmark for development team results, certainly we have to say, we have to pat ourselves on the back and the players, particularly in the clubs, what a wonderful job. But, it's probably a bit of an outlier, you know. If, you know, if that if that was never going to be the norm. Um, so, with that in context, that the last summer is probably less disappointing, if you will, because in any long journey you have to take out the noise, and 
get back to the signal. I think with the, with the senior teams, again, I think we're about on par. I mean, even if you look at the women's senior team, we just finished fourth in the World Cup. Now, you can look at back to 2015, so well, it's the same result, and it's the same result as the Euros. But there's an awful lot of change that's happened over the last 18 months with a new head coach coming in, um, you know, a change of style of play, uh, a lot of younger players coming into into that. So I think that's absolutely on par for where we, we thought we would be. Um, and and with the men's senior team, yeah, I think, again, we're right there. We're, we're ready to go to the next level. Now, um, what does the next bit look like? Um, I suppose my assessment to now is we've, we've done a lot of work on... Um, setting strong foundations, uh, getting principles of how we work in place, getting some good people in the building. You know, the, the next bit in my experience, going from semi-finalists to winners is, is hard. It's, it's the hardest bit. And some of that will require just the discipline of keeping going. And some of that will probably require a bit more fundamental examination of some of the key philosophical elements, you know, in, in any of those areas of the DNA. And, and probably a little bit more of a push to, okay, how much further were we prepared to go to get this across the line? That would be my my prediction. But I think, you know, the, the, con- the, 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 the foundations are really strong. The other thing we have to be aware of, and I know Les um, is, is acutely aware of, is we're in a dynamic environment. Um, every other nation is looking to win. You know, when we sit down and plan... We can imagine that in other countries around the world, there are similarly talented groups of people sitting there doing exactly the same thing. So just sitting here doesn't give us any right to win anything. We've, we've got to think better, make better decisions. So, um, you know, we, we've, we've, got to, we've got to bear that in mind. If we just keep doing what we've, we've done and uh, not confront, not continue to confront, you know, the important areas and, and keep examining them and, and, and challenging ourselves to get better will fail because other nations will just come, you know, they, they have other nations have stronger structural advantages, in my opinion, to, to, to some of the things that we have. So, you know, if I was here for another six years, I'd be, you know, continue to celebrate the difference, be, be happy to be different, be, mm. you know, it, it should be part of the badge of honour that we wear. And part of the secret source of our success. Mm. What, what sort of things are you thinking about there? Where you say other countries are stronger structurally? Well, I, I guess what I mean is, if you look at if you look at it numerically, um, you know, a country like France, if you take um, over the last, let's take five years, uh, the number of uh, players making starts at A grade level in a European A grade league is more than double ours. If you just look at the pure numbers of appearances, so um, you'll be familiar with the English qualified player um, statistic or the home player stuff, but we talk about English qualified players. Last season in the Premier League, 30% of the starts were made by an English qualified player, 19% in the top six clubs. That translates into about 65 players any weekend making a start who are English qualified. Now, inevitably, some will be a bit young, some will be past their peak, um, now, France would have uh, 175 players making a start in one of the top leagues around Europe. So not necessarily the French League, but certainly the Premier League, La Liga, etc., etc. So there, that's a structural piece, which is clearly driven to some extent by the power and the financial power of the Premier League. Um, 
which isn't likely to change. So against that context, um, you know, we need to continue to think differently. Now, in reverse, uh, at the World Cup, we were the only team in the last 16 who had all of its players playing in one country. So maybe that's an advantage to us at the moment now. Even the squad that happened in the autumn, uh, sorry, in the Nations League, what, you know, we had a couple playing in Germany or whatever. But so th- that's that's what I mean about some of the structural differences. Mm. Uh, but also, you know, if you take Germany uh, and they're they're twenty threes, they they re- they all get, they delayed the start of the Bundesliga in order to let their twenty threes play in the Olympics. I, I'm not sure that's likely to happen huh. in England. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, but look, we. Um, there's no point in crying about that sort of stuff and you know people at executive level in the organization i'm sure continue to work with you know other parties uh, to talk about that but that's not my mindset my mindset is look we don't actually control that um what do we control what can we get better at? Mm, yeah and will you be involved in appointing your successor helping choose them um well who, who knows if there will be a successor i don't know yet les is les is still getting together his um uh, his thoughts of, of how things will be structured going forwards. So, um, you know, Les and I have got a really good relationship and he certainly asked me to help in the transition period and, I, you know, I'd, I'd really want to help as much as I possibly can. So whether that's a helping the point of successor or supporting the transition of internal people who take on more responsibility i don't know yet but certainly i'd love to do that yeah how impressed have you been with gareth southgate having worked with the likes of sir clive woodward team gb and so on well yeah i mean hugely i don't think anybody who meets gareth can can fail to be impressed by him um i mean every every leader has a i suppose a fairly distinct and unique way of doing things and some super strengths that they bring and 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 Gareth's is undoubtedly um, his ability to connect to people, develop relationship, and 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 um, bring a, a real care and interest, a personal interest to the people in his team, and and that's res- you know that's reciprocated by incredible loyalty and dedication to, to to working with him. So, been really fortunate over my career to work with some exceptional leaders, and and he's another one. Yeah, and is he a very modern leader? So I'm thinking of things like the player empowerment, the openness to analysis, uh, performance, and so on. It's very different, isn't it, really, than it used to be? Yeah, I think he's certainly very open-minded and has a has a brilliant learning mindset himself. You know, he's he's someone who travels and goes to see lots of different people for ideas all the time, and he constantly encourages his team to think outside the box and and to challenge him and 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 what we're doing to try and improve so you know that's absolutely the sort of leader i think most people would like to to work with Um, he's not someone who thinks he has all the answers but he's also not frightened to lead you know in a more if you like traditional way when he needs to yeah and what's it like when you look back on your own career now something you've got a world cup win team gb london 2012 which was incredible um and then obviously england football during a very good period as well yeah look very very fortunate um to have gone through all of those experiences um and you know all of them have distinctive moments from you know i a comparison of you know, standing on a pitch in Sydney 
watching a group of players carry a World Cup round a, a stadium packed half with English fans was amazing. That journey was amazing uh, from from '98 through to that period. Um, you know, equally amazing the last six years here and the transformation. I think I've been fortunate to be part of with England teams and although it was actually stood on a losing semi-final pitch you know the seeing the supporters a bank of supporters behind the goal all of whom had fell in love with England football again um was was incredibly special and you know though those two as bookends you know 2012 in the middle again just seeing the power of sport to connect people and inspire people is is incredible and i suppose international sport has a unique place in being able to do that because it's you know it's your nation um, you're representing your nation and um, a great quote from a guy that we've, we've worked with um, uh, Owen Eastwood um, he talked about you know the, the crowds don't come to watch you they come to watch themselves and I think it's a really nice way of putting it what you, what you see is that they've come to see the team represent what they're all about and to feel connected to what you know what they would like to be all about and so those three moments i think are great examples of how teams you know and successes relative successes have have, have shown that up you know, the response you get from the public and the you know the raw emotion and connection and and positivity that flows from those things is incredible um and so you know i'm incredibly lucky to have been part of that and do you think that's something the men's and women's teams have done? They've given the fans and the country something to be proud of and a team to be proud of? Yeah, look, through their performances, definitely, but also more though, more more than that, through sharing a bit of themselves and, and what we've, you know, what we've tried to be. So, you know, definitely the identity piece uh, is both personal and collective. So being able to create more of a window into who these people are, where they've come from, is an incredibly powerful way of helping people to connect to them. So I think you saw that last summer in Russia, um, you know, which was a purposeful strategy, um, brilliant piece of work with our comms team, but our comms team are, are part of our performance planning group. So, you know, that's a communications is, is a competitive advantage. We see it as such. Um, and so it's difficult for the public to connect to people that they don't identify with, they don't recognise them, they don't, you know, that they don't drive the same cars or they don't seem to have the same backgrounds as them. But if you let them into your journey and, you, and what you're all about and what you stand for as individuals, the connections are that much more powerful. So I think um, that window in is important because that that's really where the connection is and then if you've got performance on top of that that's that multiplies but the connection in of itself i think is really important because as teams you're going to go through some bumps in the road and if everyone just leaves you alone you know it just disappears when you're not you're not winning um maybe the connection wasn't that strong in the first place so i think continuing to work hard on that is going to be really important for us superb thanks dave Thank you for listening to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. We'll be back next week for a special bonus edition. In the meantime, you can follow our latest updates on Twitter at ground underscore guru.